there, hello. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast. It's brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, brilliant to be back again this week in the last few weeks. Michael and I have gone from Amsterdam to Liverpool to Bergamo to Milan to Sheffield, all, of course, from the comfort of our own homes. And now we head to Madrid, uh, giving the podcast a touch of class, according to a recent review, is The Athletic's tactics writer, Michael Cox. Michael, you're setting up fake accounts to leave reviews on this podcast. I didn't realise you'd stretch that far. No, I actually wasn't aware of that review, although, of course, this is exactly what I would be saying if that was (laughs) me leaving that review. But thank you very much to that uh, person for leaving that feedback. It's very nice. Uh, Good to see you've been more than busy on the Athletic site at the moment. Uh, The Premier League's greatest tactical substitutions. We've got, uh, I think, the penultimate entry in Cox's iconic shirt numbers series. Uh, And also an extra piece on Mr. Zaccaroni, who we spoke about on this podcast just two weeks ago. Um, This week on the Zona Marking Pod, Michael, we're going Spanish. How are we doing that and why? Well, of course, we wanted to uh, welcome our new La Liga writer to the podcast. And uh, yeah, one of the uh, articles we first or we collaborated on when, when Dermot first joined was uh, about Zidane and his influences and what he's up to at Real Madrid and I guess quite why he's been so successful. So it seemed the natural option to welcome him onto the pod by looking at that same subject. Absolutely. A warm welcome to the ZM podcast, Dermot Corrigan. How are you doing, Dermot? Hey, cheers. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Um, it's been a strange time to to join up with the Atletico strange time to be to be writing about football but um it's all going pretty well good well no la liga football of course like every other footballing division across the world at the moment apart from belarus uh, so what have you been writing about your first few entries on the athletic where have you found yourself leaning in terms of spanish football content well there's been no shortage of, of stuff going on barcelona have provided us with plenty of drama over the last couple of weeks with all of the the trouble that's going on there on the board. So one of the first pieces I did was just about how the club finances, how they're the richest club in the world, Barcelona, but they somehow managed to also need the, to get the players led by Messi to bail them out and, and pay the wages of the, the people who work at the club, the security guards and the, the guys in the club shop and everybody now that there's there's nobody going into the club shop or, or security's not needed. Um, did another piece about Athletic Bilbao because that's what a lot of people... Um, asked for when I did the introductory piece that everybody has to do with the athletic below the line there was a call went out for for subjects of what people might want to to read about and a lot of people are looking for athletic Bilbao so spoke to a good few people from from the club there and to Echeverria you know a legendary player at the club who's back now as the the coach of the youth team and and different people just to give a feel for the the unique philosophy that Atlantic Bilbao has and also the opportunity that they have because of all the the home produce players that they've produced and sold on they now have lots of money and um, so to see whether they might start to maybe splash some of that money a- and get some new bass players in yeah i was one of the many people that enjoyed that piece on athletic club uh, i went there a few years ago to the new san mames it's an amazing place and and such an amazing club and you've written all about it on the athletic site uh, at the moment if you go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, you'll get a 90-day free trial. So a good chance to check out Michael's writing, Dermot's writing, but all sorts of other good stuff on the Athletic site at the moment. Currently, uh, there are a whole host of articles uh, about various players of the year for various teams. So uh, getting ready for an awards night 
this Sunday on The Athletic. Make sure you sign up. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking is the place to go for your 90-day free trial. But let's get into Mr. Zinedine Zidane Zizou, or as his close family and friends call him, Yazid, of course. Something of a, a mythical creature for many people, but also the most successful manager in European football, uh, certainly in the last five years or so. So plenty to unpack here. I suppose, Dermot, you're based in Madrid, covering Spanish football as you have for many years now and, and now for The Athletic. What is Zidane like to cover week in, week out in press conferences as someone who, who covers the club closely? He's not the most charismatic of, of figures in the press conferences, it, it's fair to say. I don't think he's that pushed about the media, really. He doesn't, he sees, you know, he has to come out and talk to us and he answers the questions. He generally keeps us cool, but he doesn't feel that he has to give anything away or really to, to charm the media or to 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 keep us on board or impress us in any kind of way he's pretty confident in himself and pretty confident that he's doing a a good job and doesn't feel the need to explain it Uh, another thing that is kind of about him that's interesting enough is that his spanish is not his first language so he doesn't tend to get into long long conversations with the the local reporters and maybe even makes use of that to, to hide behind it a little bit or to just to he doesn't kill himself trying to come up with the right words to explain himself. He's happy enough just to to let sentences drift off or to to let points drift off because you know he, he's not too worried if he hasn't impressed the guy who's asking him or if he hasn't answered the question completely. We're going to be getting deep into the tactics of Real Madrid under Zidane in both of his spells. Um, but is it fair to say that as a local journalist, it is uh, more or less a given now not to bother asking Zizou. Uh, in-depth tactical questions that the like of which might be asked to to other managers such as let's say Pep Guardiola or or dare I say Kike Setien at at Barcelona he's not something that he particularly expounds on is it? No not really like before Zidane came in I guess something we'll get to as well Benitez was there and Benitez used to love to to talk to explain what he had done and you know to to show off a little bit that you know I took this player out here and I put this other player in here and look what a, a big difference it made for the game. Zidane's less less into doing that. Sometimes he can get maybe since he's come back as well, he can be a little bit more prickly when when people criticize him. If you come out if you ask him a question that goes, Zidane, you know, where did it all go wrong or you made a real ball to that one, then he, he will come back at you and he will he will point to to maybe he'll hurt his pride a little bit. But but generally speaking, he's prefers to just talk about the effort that the players put in to talk about isn't it, you know, Madrid is the greatest club in the world, the fans are great, um, the opposition are really good. You know, it's going to be a difficult game where we're just concentrating on making sure we get to the weekend. That Those type of cliches tend to pop up quite a lot in his, in his press conferences. Well, he might not give us much of a helping hand in terms of, of explaining the tactics that he likes to use for this Real Madrid team. But we've got plenty of other ways of digging into it and producing this podcast for you. Michael, one of the things that you have done uh, is write uh, the story of European football tactics uh, in book form, the Zonal Marking book, of course, and something I think that regular listeners of, of the Zonal Marking pod deserve to know and probably don't know is that for the French portion of the book, uh, you needed someone who speaks or at least reads French to uh, to read a little bit of French autobiographical content to uh, to get the, the juiciest quotes and a, a little steer on things. And, and you, you called me up well before we started doing this podcast together. And there I was reading, I think, almost 20 French football autobiographies, uh, many of which concerned Zinedine Zidane, not a man who, 
likes to talk about himself, but many books written about him, given his status in French football. What did you deduce from the research that we did for the French portion of that book from Zidane as a player uh, and, and I suppose in a tactical context within his game? Well, you tell me, Ali, since you read all those books. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it was an interesting thing to, to research because I think Zidane... You know, he's very familiar to, to us three and I guess most people who, who are listening to this podcast. But I think he also, he was playing in a period that was slightly before, um, you know, the stage where every game was live around the world, before there were statistics on literally every game week in, week out, where European football coverage was a little bit more difficult to find, you know, cross borders. And I think maybe people don't realise the extent, one, to which he was regarded as quite an inconsistent player throughout his career. And maybe more relevantly for, for what we're talking about today, a player who I think really shifted in terms of what he was all about when he moved clubs. So when he was in uh, playing in Ligue 1 in France, I think he was the Zidane we associate broadly with how he played for the national side. Tremendous style, tremendous grace, you know, one of the most beautiful players to which you will ever see. But I think when he went to Juventus uh, in 1996, you know, we know Juventus is not really a side that traditionally admires flair and, uh, you know, it's not really about attacking football and putting on a show. It's really about winning. And I think Zidane's mentality changed a lot when he went to Juve, particularly uh, working under Marcello Lippi. And then when he went to Real Madrid in, in 2001 for another five years, stint at a major club, Real were the complete opposite. I mean, this was Real in their kind of Galactico mode when they were obsessed with signing superstars and almost becoming the Harlem Globetrotters of, of football, to use a bit of a cliche that was always used at the time. So you could you could interpret this either way. You could say, one, he's adaptable and flexible enough to play in different cultures. Or you can say that this wasn't a player who had a particularly fixed idea of what he wanted to be as a, you know, in terms of his role on the pitch. And maybe there is some kind of confusion about precisely his specific role in those Juve and those Real Madrid teams. Yeah, talk, talk a bit more about that. I mean, he, he won number five for Real Madrid. I think most people consider him to be uh, a number 10 uh, as as we might know it right now. But what sort of roles did he take up at, at key parts of his career with Juventus, with, with Real Madrid and, and with France as well? Tactically, he was interesting. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in either one of the books I read or one of the books you read, I can't quite remember, Ali, was that he, he when he was growing up, he didn't really have a preference for what his best midfield role was. Sometimes he was number eight. Sometimes he was number 10. Uh, certainly in the first few months when he went to Juventus, he played a very, very deep position, kind of the role we've come to to expect Andrea Pirlo playing for Juventus. That only lasted a few months before they moved Didier Deschamps into that position, which was a bit more natural. Uh, Zidane gradually moved higher up the pitch. But personally, I wouldn't say he was necessarily a classic number 10, as, as maybe someone like Francesco Totti was, who was very much between the lines, always getting the ball there. I think he liked to operate in deeper positions. He liked to see a lot of the ball. There were occasions for both France and Real Madrid where he played from the left flank, which was... You know, maybe not something he was comfortable with. And when he initially retired from international football after Euro 2004, then came back to the national side, but insisted that it wouldn't be, uh, you know, he wasn't prepared to play on the left. He wanted only to play as, as the central player. So clearly by that time, he had a bit more of a fixed idea of where he wanted to be. But yeah, his his career was maybe a little bit more up and down and a little bit less of a, you know, it wasn't constant success the way it's been for Messi or Ronaldo. He was uh, a player who did have some difficult seasons, some some periods where he had to be accommodated in the sides. But of course, you know, remembered as, as one of the, the greatest players of his era, certainly. Dermot, what do you know about that 
time spent with Juventus and the ways in which it influenced the, the manager Zidane that we see now in charge of Real Madrid? Because Zidane, he doesn't talk so much about, about his influences. You have to deduce some of of what's going on in his head. But you could see from the way that he surrounded himself with people from that time. As soon as he took over at Madrid, he went uh, as soon as he could and got the fitness coach, um, Antonio Pintas, who he had worked with in Italy. Some of the, the other backroom staff that he'd come in were people who, who had come from Italy. And he seemed to... It's almost like he, because of his two main um, his two main clubs at, when he was at the top of his career, Juventus and Madrid, that he, he leaned towards Juventus because Madrid had been such chaos when he was there. And he's talked about it a little bit kind of obliquely during his time about avoiding some of the, the pitfalls of, of those times of having too many players who didn't work hard enough, players who, who weren't fully focused on what they were doing. Whereas what he seems to have taken from Juventus and from working under Lippi especially was that focus, as Michael was saying, on winning the game, that it's great to have to decorate it with some pieces of individual skill and to, to do some some exciting things that get the fans on the edge of their seats, but only if it's going to, to end up in a goal. And if you if you're not willing to, to work hard and to, to work for the team, then you're not going to be you're not going to be allowed a place in as in the incident team. So that's interesting. So he's almost trying to make Real Madrid, a team that he enjoyed plenty of success with as a player, more like Juventus uh, and and maybe strong more strongly influenced by his time uh, in Turin. Michael, which managers that Zidane played under do you think were particularly key in, in his development? Well, I think probably the two he played under at Juventus. Um, they're very different, really. I mean, Marcello Lippi, as, as I mentioned briefly before, was the manager when he first got there. Lippi was a kind of old school Italian manager. He was all about winning. He was all about systems. He was all about making his players physically fit. I think he really encouraged Zidane or forced Zidane to be more efficient with the way he played, less kind of tricks and stepovers and, and more just you know, take one or two touches, play the correct pass and make sure you're in the right position. And then came Carlo Ancelotti, who, um, I mean, the in- interesting thing with Ancelotti is I think Zidane changed Ancelotti as much as vice versa. I mean, Ancelotti previously was a very strict coach, someone who liked uh, 4-4-2, a very disciplined shape. And, you know, previously in his career, hadn't liked using number 10s like Baggio or, or Gianfranco Zola. But with Zidane, he was just completely charmed and completely, you know, stunned by how good Zidane was technically and really changed his mentality to base the side around him. The the Ancelotti period at Juventus was not successful. I mean, they they narrowly missed out on the title uh, both years and Ancelotti kind of developed this reputation as being almost not quite having the the winning mentality, if you like. And that seems very harsh when you look through his career and, and the European Cups he's won. But he, he doesn't often win the league title. Um, and so it's been interesting to see Zidane's, um, you know, his style of manager. I, I think it's been somewhere in between Ancelotti and Lippi. When me and Dermot were, were discussing the article we wrote, we kind of, fl- well, I floated the idea that Zidane had almost gone from being a bit of an Ancelotti to a bit of a Lippi. Dermot, who watches them week, uh, week in, week out, said it's probably a bit more complex than that. But I think there's a kind of, there's almost a scale that Zidane's style is somewhere in between, you know, those two managers he had at Juventus. Six full seasons in French football with Cannes and Bordeaux, uh, five seasons with Juventus in Serie A and five in La Liga with Real Madrid. And and as you mentioned, a a real paucity of league titles, just three in that time, which might come as as some surprise to some people. And let's talk about his move into the role of manager because Dermot, he wasn't just straight in, was he? There there was an interesting journey uh, before he became the proper manager, shall we say, of of Real Madrid. He was initially appointed in a, a strange sort of sporting director role. He also served his time 
with the club's reserve team Castilla and also as Carlo Ancelotti's assistant manager. So a, a, a long-ish apprenticeship, you would say, within the club. Yeah, he was there for, for quite a long time. He became very close to, to Florentino Perez or Florentino Perez was very happy to, to keep him close. And Zidane, his, his wife is Spanish. His kids were going through the, the youth system at Madrid as well. So he kind of made his, as, as you said there, he traveled around a lot between France and Italy and then to, to Madrid. But he, he made his home here in, in the Spanish capital and he remained kind of attached to the club without having, for a lot of that time, maybe without having too many day-to-day duties. He was involved in things like when Rafael Varane was coming through and was only 18, Zidane spoke to him to try to get him to come or successfully got him to come to the club, tried to get Hazard as well maybe earlier on in his career and had that kind of a role of um, just being being Zidane really and bringing that kind of glamour to to the club but also being useful maybe for, for little conversations and at the time people wondered and well I especially wondered and there was kind of talk in the press here about whether his heart was really in it if that was what he was happy enough to do not to have a full-time job not to be you know to have that day-to-day have to work and focus and give devote all of his energy to it as if he was somebody who was maybe happy enough with life because he's such a maybe a secretive character as well, he wasn't going around doing media punditry or doing lots of interviews. We weren't sure kind of how, how it was going to work out. So then, you know, there was a time when he was there as a sporting director, uh, as he said, and Mourinho, during Mourinho's time, Mourinho wasn't too happy to have him around. He basically um, told Zidane he wasn't welcome in the in the changing room. Remember that the first question that, that I asked Zidane at a press conference was about that. And that got one of those answers where he he actually did did want to to make sure that you were clear about what had happened and that his um, his relationship with with Mourinho had not that they'd fallen out but just that he he wasn't involved in any of the the, the crap I guess we can say that that Mourinho was was involved in that he was it was clear that that wasn't coming from him. Then as Ancelotti's assistant again he had a very um, understated role at that stage. Sometimes assistants you know are very involved in the coaching or they have a big reputation in the media or you can you talk to club sources and they tell you how what a great job the assistant is doing whereas Zidane again he seemed to be a sounding board for the players more than anything else that they would talk close to to the players especially maybe the younger players or players who who weren't so um who needed just a geeing up or, or to help with their confidence or, or little bits of advice that seemed to be his main role so again when he took over as as the coach when he came in to replace Benitez we were really unsure how it was going to go you know it wouldn't have been a huge surprise if he had been, uh, if he'd found it very difficult, or if he, you know, hadn't been able to to step up and to be a coach, had was a challenge for him. But obviously, it went pretty well from the start. Well, he did find enough energy to take over Castilla for a few seasons, and then, of course, he he becomes Real Madrid manager in January 2016, and he replaces Rafa Benitez, as mentioned. What sort of shape were? Real Madrid in at that stage and how did Zidane approach things early on? He went horribly badly. Everybody remembers how Rafa Benitez just wasn't a great fit for Madrid, that he had trouble with the, the press, he had trouble with the some of the players in the dressing room, especially the, the bigger players in the dressing room. They got hammered at home by Barcelona in a Clásico and it, w- it was no surprise when he was sacked in, in January. But Madrid had also maybe been on the on the wane for 12 months or so by the time Zidane came in. The last six months of Ancelotti's campaign in charge, it was clear that that he was going to go. They maybe took their foot off the pedal after winning the Champions League, you know, after ending the, the wait for the decimal was such a big thing that the following season wasn't great. They got beaten 4-0 at, at Atletico Madrid, I remember, at that stage. And Zidane also seemed to have to have seen what had gone wrong there, seen what had gone wrong under Benitez, and have a really clear idea of what he wanted from the team as soon as he, 
he came in. He didn't change everything, but he, he there was a big maybe it's just a change in focus, especially amongst the the senior players to to get them focused on their job, to get them concentrated, to get them working harder, to to clear away any of the the other stuff that was going on in their lives or in their heads and get down to, to winning football matches seemed to be the, his, his main priority on taking over. That's interesting. Michael, he obviously wins uh, the Champions League within six months. Uh, not a bad start to a managerial career. Dermot's talked about the, well, I, I suppose, questions of psychology and, and questions of uh, motivation and, and man management uh, tactically. Is there anything you saw when he took charge? I mean, he's taking over a manager in Benitez who was quite the tactician. Uh, what did this Real Madrid team look like when they won that that first Champions League against Atletico Madrid? Well, I guess the interesting thing was Zidane placed a lot of faith in Casemiro, the defensive midfielder, who you know hadn't really played that much under Benitez towards the, the end of his time there, essentially because it seemed Benitez had orders from higher up that you know, he wasn't supposed to play a defensive midfielder. And I think that maybe shows what the change was. Zidane just had a little bit more authority. And some of the decisions he made, I think, were the decisions that Benitez might have wanted uh, to have made. But yeah, Benitez just didn't have that quite, you know, the gravitas in the changing room. I mean, I think they were an interesting side, Real. I mean, one of the the key things I'd say when looking at their shape, particularly in the last stage of the European Cup, was the roles that Modric and Cruz played. So they played either side of a midfield three with, with Casemiro in the middle. And they always spread kind of very wide, almost out to the channels, um, rather than pushing forward into attack or, or dominating from the centre ground. And I think that created quite an interesting structure that protected Real from you know, opposition counterattacks with the fullbacks moving on and overlapping. Um, so that was interesting to see. Also the role of Casemiro itself. I mean, sometimes he was really deep and almost like a third centre-back protecting Pepe and Ramos. And then at other times he advanced surprisingly high up the pitch, almost, you know, as into kind of number 10 position. So there were some variations that I thought were interesting from, uh, from Real. I think in that European Cup final itself, they were maybe a little bit lucky. I mean, they started well. I think Simeone... Probably outcoached Zidane that day, made a half-time change from 4-4-2 to 4-2-3-1. And uh, Atletico were probably the better side, in, in certainly in the second half and, and even in extra time. So I'm not sure that that was a particularly convincing victory in the European Cup that season. But of course, that was just the first part of, uh, you know, a quite unthinkable treble when you look at the history of the Champions League, particularly in its modern era. For so long, we said, you know, is any side ever going to be able to retain this and then Real won three on the bounce they certainly did and Dermot that first full campaign in charge the 2016-17 season uh, it is a magnificent La Liga and Champions League double uh, is it fair to say that, that Zidane's Real Madrid peaked here yeah that was a pretty amazing campaign really they they played so well. That's the best that Madrid have played in a long time, maybe the, the century or something. They just played really, really well. There was a lot of games where they maybe they 2-0 up, 3-0 up after after 25 minutes in the game and just were blowing people away. They had such a good squad at that stage because they still had like people like James Rodriguez, Alvaro Morata, Kovacic, who were you know top players who were internationals who had really good reputation but who couldn't get into the into the team. And they, at that stage, anyway, were fully plugged in. He had everybody motivated. They, they used to talk about the the seconds team that that would come in, like in a in a military kind of a, a way that the Spanish phrase to come in and fill in while the others the others were away. And often he would rotate five, six, seven players for a game, maybe to go to Granada or to, to go to Ibar or something like that, which are games which Madrid over the years have so often slipped up in. You know that's why Madrid or Barcelona have won 
um, so many La Ligas over the last decade is because sometimes Madrid might have a better starting eleven, but Barca would often, you know, get results in the, the more di- or the against the lower profile teams wouldn't drop so many points. And that season, Madrid were, were fully switched onto it. At the start of that year, Zidane said that La Liga was the was the priority. You know, they just won the Champions League and European Cup is such a big thing at Madrid. But he kept drumming home even from preseason that we want to win La Liga. We haven't won it for a couple of years. I remember being at the the game in Malaga when they clinched that league title, and he was super happy. You know, you could see Zidane didn't often give away what he was feeling, or he's a guy who who doesn't share too much emotion with the, the press anyway. But that day he was super happy. He talked a lot about what it meant to him to have, have won a league. That the for somebody he, he talks a lot maybe about sees themselves as common workers or people who who clock in and clock out every day and they have to put in their their full effort each day when they go to training. And it's possible to win a Champions League without putting in that effort, as I guess they had done the, the previous year. But in order to win La Liga, and especially to, to beat Barca with Messi at his peak, more or less, a, around that time, and to come out on top was something that he was super saw as super important. And is, is probably, from, from talking to him, the, the proudest um, that he's been a, as Madrid coach. What relationship did Zidane have and, and develop with Cristiano Ronaldo? Uh, you know, if, if Zidane is... Uh, uh, something of a mythical creature and a, a huge name within Real Madrid from their past. Ronaldo was was the present at that time, certainly as a player. Uh, that 2016-17 season, he actually doesn't score to quite the same extent. I mean, we're talking 25 and 29 league games. It's still a, a very decent return and 42 in all competitions. Uh, but it's only a, a, a few seasons after he scored 48 in a La Liga season. Uh, what was Zidane's relationship with him personally and how did he get the best out of him? Zidane's relationship was great. was the best, I would say, of any of the, the managers who, who joined Cristiano's time at Madrid. And a main reason for that was that Zidane was happy for Ronaldo to, to take the credit. Zidane was happy. Was often people would try to, to foment a bit of rivalry and go, you know, Cristiano is really good, Zizou, but, but you are even better, that type of a, a question in the, in the press conferences. And Zidane would all, always say, look, Cristiano is is the best player that, that I've ever seen, the best player that I've coached. He talked a lot about how scoring goals was the hardest thing in football, that, that Zidane himself hadn't had never been a, a really great goal scorer, or he was the kind of cliched scorer of great goals rather than somebody who, who scored regularly. Um, whereas Ronaldo, for Ronaldo to do it, to score three goals this week, two goals next week, three goals the following week, was just the hardest thing in football to do. And Ronaldo really r- respected him, obviously saw him as, a, as an equal, as somebody who who he could talk to on the same level, which doesn't always happen with Ronaldo and his coaches, obviously. And also then Zidane was able to persuade him to, to sit out for games, whereas Ronaldo used to, uh, when he was scoring those 48 goals a season, you know, he'd get very angry even if he was taken off with 10 minutes to go and there were 5-0 up at home to Granada, whereas Zidane was able to persuade him to, to miss some games completely, to stay at home in Madrid when the team were going to, to an away game. Somebody like Morata or, or James would come in, the team would win. And Ronaldo would come back in for the Champions League midweek, rested and play really well. And Zidane managed to to show Ronaldo that that was the best for him personally, as well as for the team, which was a a pretty difficult thing for for anybody to do, and which other coaches hadn't managed before. Uh, Michael, it's a. Uh... Well, it's his only La Liga title to date, but just to focus on that Champions League win, uh, of course, they beat Juventus 4-1 in the final. Quite an interesting campaign in general. 
uh, three wins and three draws in the group stage. They actually came second in the group to Borussia Dortmund and then had a, a, an amazing knockout stage, really, beating Napoli, uh, Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid on their way to that final in Cardiff against Juventus. What was going on tactically there? How were they approaching things in the Champions League? So at this stage, Zidane seemed slightly torn between two systems, whether he was using the 4-3-3 with Gareth Bale on, on the right flank usually, or whether he was going to use the, the diamond with, uh, with Isco coming into the side as the number 10. And certainly for the Champions League final against Juventus, he went with the diamond, which was obviously a bit of a blow to Gareth Bale on home soil in Cardiff. I think maybe Bale wasn't 100% fit in fairness. But this was a really interesting system. And this final, to me, almost encapsulates what Real Madrid were all about under Zidane in the sense that for the first half, I really wasn't convinced that this system was working because it was a really odd system, the way they played without the ball. Isco started as the number 10, but dropped back to the kind of left of the midfield three, which meant Luka Modric, who was on the right of the diamond, had to shuffle across and become the right side of midfielder. And certainly in the opening stages, it was Modric and Carvajal who were really getting a bit of a battering down that side. And suddenly, without almost any kind of logic, Real just managed to turn it around and they got a couple of, well, certainly one goal from Casemiro in particular was a very lucky deflection. But the two players who really shone in the second half were Modric and Carvajal, the two players who... uh, you know, who'd look so beleaguered in the opening stages. So for me, that kind of summed up a lot of big games for Real over the years. It was slightly difficult to find pure tactical reasons why they were winning. And yet they always seem to come up with the goods. This Sunday, The Athletic are hosting a Player of the Year awards night. All of The Athletic writers and podcast hosts have voted across a number of categories. And from 7pm on Sunday, we'll be announcing the winners. But before then, make sure you listen to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast every day this week, where we'll be announcing the shortlist for each category. On Tuesday, we started with Young Player of the Year, and that's followed on Wednesday by Underrated Player, and on Thursday with our Team of the Year. Then on Friday, you'll hear the shortlist for the main award, the Men's and Women's Players of the Year. So that's a new show every day this week on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast feed. And to find out the winners on Sunday night, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app. Go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking to take advantage of that 90 day free trial. What about the 2017-18 season? I think a fair question would be, how do you follow up a league and Champions League double? Well, they win the Champions League again. Talk me through that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a particularly successful campaign in the league, but yeah, a third European Cup. Uh, this time against Liverpool in the final, which I guess people remember chiefly for for Carrius and his two mistakes. I mean, this was another interesting game uh, in terms of the tactics. It was pretty much the same system as before. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about Zidane's first period at Real is for this side that has been so intense, 10 over the last 20 years on bringing in superstars. It was such a settled side for so long. And you get to the stage where the players just know each other uh, inside out. And and really, even when the shape is a little bit dodgy, you just see relationships between players that, that can kind of get them through. But yeah, in this, uh, in this final, it was the diamond again with Isco at the top. I don't think that worked particularly well because I think that it actually played into Liverpool's hands and allowed them to press quite a, a narrow area of the pitch very effectively. Um, the, the slightly peculiar thing was that 
Uh, Bale, when Bale came on for Isco, it, it reverted to the 4-3-3 with Bale on the right flank. But then Bale drifted in and, of course, scored two goals, one in particular, that bicycle kick, particularly uh, memorable from a central position. So again, it's, it's one of these kind of pe- peculiarities that Zidane changed the system to play with more width. And yet the winger he brings on drifts into the centre and scores two crucial goals. Dermot, now we get to a, kind of a strange part of the story, certainly looking back and, and with Zidane the current manager of Real Madrid. We're talking about a period not too long ago with three Champions Leagues in a row. But of course, uh, there's a, a bit of time apart, not that long in the end. But from the outside, uh, it looked something of a surprise when Zidane announced his resignation as Real Madrid manager five days after that Champions League final win against Liverpool. I dare say for someone like yourself covering the club closely and a little bit closer to things, it might have been less of a surprise. What was going on there? What's the story? The way that he did it and the way it came out was on the day that it happened as well. It was a shock. But then when you were looking back on it, he had kind of flagged a little bit how things had to change at the club. As they were going through La Liga, the La Liga season was pretty awful. They finished a long way behind Barcelona in the table. They lost some some silly games, you know, losing at home at the Bernabeu. They were knocked out of the, the Copa del Rey to, to Leganes at home at the Bernabeu, which was pretty embarrassing. And he had seemed that he, he was saying that either, either something big has to change, either we're going to have to change a lot of the players or else I'm going to have to go. And then it, it was him who decided to go at the time because he thought that maybe similar enough to when Guardiola left Barcelona, that he had taken this group of players as as far as they could, that they needed a new voice, a, a new impetus, that he got maybe too too friendly with them as well to be able to to tell Ramos or, or Modric or, or whoever it was that, you know, he didn't need them anymore or that they were going to have to step aside to, to build a new team. Uh, and it it seemed to be that that he felt that he couldn't really top what he had done with this team and that he need, it needed to either be a, a new coach or a new team and, and he decided to step away for somebody else to come in. And I'm going to ask you to tell me the story of, of what happened after his departure, that season that Real Madrid had with Julian Lopetegui originally and then Zidane's former teammate, Santi Solari. Uh, what was the story there? Lop- Lopetegui's uh, brief reign as Real Madrid manager must go down as one of the more bizarre periods in the club's modern history. It was really bizarre when Zidane left because, as I said, you know, it shouldn't have come as a huge surprise to, to Florentino Perez and the decision makers at the club because Zidane had been flagging it up in public and we presume that behind the scenes as well. Maybe they thought he was just bluffing and that he there was no way he was going to walk away. But they had no succession plan. They had no idea really of who they were going to, to go for. So there was a couple of... It dragged on for three or four weeks where, you know, lots of people were approached. Um, Conte, there was, there was talk of... Jordan Klopp, they, they tried to get, they even spoke with Nagelsmann, who was very young at, at that stage, because they just couldn't find somebody of the, the requisite stature to, to, to come over and in the or to take over. And in the end, they had to go and take Spain's coach right on the eve of the World Cup. And Lopetegui, you know, didn't, he was an ex-Madrid player for, for a while, but he didn't really have the stature of, of somebody who you thought was going to take over, you know, the, the top club in the world is that they would see themselves. So they were almost just going for somebody who was the Spain manager, as opposed to actually Lopetegui's skill set or experience and then you know that was a difficult way for Lopetegui to come into the job in the first place and then it, it just didn't go well for him from from the start in a different situation maybe things would have worked out better for him but he was up against it from the start he was arguing with the the, the supporters he was kind of just or with the journalists he was justifying himself kind of 
without even being asked to justify himself, he felt the need to to defend himself in public to come across. He came across as kind of moany and and upset a lot of the time. And the mood around the place was just not good. The results weren't great. They lost the Classico and and he was gone. And then again, they tried to get somebody that went for Conte again, couldn't find anybody else to come in. So Solari stepped up from the, the B team. Solari also was in a really difficult situation because the players had weren't being weren't fully up for it. They weren't motivated as they had been before. They'd also lost a lot of the those players who I spoke about before in the 2016-17 season, the likes of of Morada, James Rodriguez, who was gone to Bayern at that stage, Pepe as well had left. So the squad was a lot a lot a uh, lighter than it had been before. They signed a lot of young players like Vinicius, but you know he's he wasn't ready to, to come in. He's still not ready to come in. So it was a really tough job for Solari. He did his best as a good club man to, to try to take over, but he was almost, he, he was never really going to work out for him. So then he left and people really didn't know what was going to happen next. And suddenly Zidane comes back as a, out of nowhere. It was a, it was a bigger surprise almost when he came back to take over the job than it had been when, when he left, because you assume that he left for good reasons. He's the kind of guy who you don't really think of him as a personality of somebody who goes back on something he's, he's just decided to do six months before. But it was almost like Florentino Perez was like, look, we're, we're really screwed here. We really need you to come back. You need to save save the club because this is going really badly. And he answered the call. Yeah, when he did return, just towards the back end of last season, the 18-19 the season, was there a sense, I suppose, probably it was more a case of just getting to the end of the season. But this season, um, what we've seen so far before the suspension of football, was there any sense that he had changed as a manager? I mean, it's, this isn't necessarily a sort of Guardiola-esque sabbatical that he took, you know, when Pep became best mates with professional chess players and was trying to learn all different ways of doing things. But but was there any change to Zidane's approach when he came back or or back to normal? I think that the change has been to even more focus on on being fitter than everybody else, on running harder, on on working harder, maybe because the players are, are older, because they need that geeing up even more than they did before. And because Ronaldo's not there, this time around, he's been much quicker to to sideline players completely, like, like Gareth Bale is the the obvious one who was kind of in and out before, but has spent a lot of time out of the, the team now. James Rodriguez disappeared completely this year. Even Isco was was completely out of it for three or four months earlier on in the season before he came back. Maybe maybe he feels more able to, to make big decisions. Maybe he feels he's being forced into making these type of decisions. But there's also a feeling that he didn't get what he wanted. As I said there, when he, he came back and Florentino said, look, please come back and save us. The feeling at the time, and it was pretty clear from what Zidane said, was that he'd been given a chance to build a new team. That before he left, because he he couldn't coach the old team anymore, so he was going to be able to to build a new team. Last summer in the transfer market, they went for you know, Pogba, most obviously tried to get rid of Bale, obviously as well. But the players that Zidane seemed to want didn't arrive at the club, and the players they didn't want were, were still there by the end of the summer. So he he was pretty angry about that. He didn't hide that very well in his or he, he didn't go about hiding it, he didn't feel he needed to hide it. But he knuckled down and said, we're going to have to, to make the best of, of what we have. He kept he used a, a Spanish version of the phrase, "We this, it is what it is, or we have what we have, and we're going to have to, to, to work with that, which is you know pretty strange considering it's Madrid who have so, so much money and one of the richest clubs in the world. But he, he's tried to instill that type of a, an idea of being a workman-like team, a team who don't give anything away. And this season in La Liga, they've had you know, the best uh, defensive record in the league. Thibaut Courtois is on on course if if we don't go back and play anymore he'll he'll win the Zamora award for the least goals conceded the fewest goals conceded and it is a, a Madrid team who've been super functional more like Juventus maybe that, than ever in, in the way that they approach the games and in the results that they get. Uh, Michael how how different are things 
tactically in this spell to his first spell? I mean, the spine of the team is more or less the same, right? Yes, similar. I mean, I think there's been a defensive shift. That's clear from looking at the very basic numbers. I mean, in Zidane's uh, two complete seasons in charge in his first stint, they scored 2.8 and 2.5 goals per game, respectively. Uh, That's now down to 1.8. And in terms of goals conceded, beforehand it was 1.1 and 1.2, and now it's 0.7. So, yeah, there's been a, a defensive shift. I would say that is mainly attributable to the fact that there's no Ronaldo. Gareth Bale started the season. It seemed like he was going to leave. Of course, he's stayed, but he hasn't necessarily been a, a major part of the plans. Isco, who's who's a player that has kind of fallen in and out of favour with Zidane over the years, has, has really not been on his game this year. 11 starts, only one goal and zero assists. So I think because of that, they've had to play in a different way. They've had to be a little bit more defensive, a little bit more cautious. The player who's who's really excelled this season has been Benzema, who leads the, the Real stats in terms of both goals and assists. And I think after so long really being a foil for Cristiano Ronaldo over the last 18 months, we've We've almost been reminded what a good footballer he can be as a as an individual. And there's also some young players coming through um, who I think will probably be coming into their own in the in the next year or two. But um, yeah, certainly it hasn't been a kind of free flowing Real Madrid side this season. And uh, well, that was why Dermot suggested uh, you know doing that article about Zidane being influenced by his time at Juventus. It does seem amazing to look at a Real Madrid team with. A top goal scorer with, with 14 goals. It's fine. It's, it's not Ronaldo in his peak, but it's a it's a good record. 14 from 25 starts for Karim Benzema. And then the next top scorer in the league to be Sergio Ramos on five. Uh, and then, well, Casemiro, Modric and Cruz have, have got three each. It's certainly surprising thinking about Real Madrid and, and, and past teams and Galacticos and and things like that, but it definitely does speak to a defensive shift in the side, as you as you've mentioned, to, to Ronaldo's departure, and of course the unfortunate uh, injury to Hazard and and to Bale to certain extents as well. So there are some mitigating circumstances. I, I just wanted to ask Dermot. Michael touched on a few young players there. I mean, looking at the the core of the squad, uh, as mentioned, there are a lot of guys who have been there for a long time. You've got a, a fair few. In their 30s, the likes of Benzema, Ramos, Modric, Cruz, uh, Bale, of course, although arguably his body is carrying more mileage than his age would suggest. And then you've got this group of young players, uh, Vinicius and Rodrigo, 19-year-old Brazilians, uh, Luka Jovic, 22-year-old, and and Valverde, Fede Valverde, the 21-year-old, and not a huge amount in between. Is there a sense that when football gets back underway, whatever happens with the... Uh, conclusion to this season that Real Madrid's squad it seems to me on paper a little imbalanced is that being discussed in Real Madrid sir? Yeah for sure and it comes down a bit to the the financial situation that Madrid used to be the richest club in the world in Zidane's time they were able to go out and sign uh, Zidane's time as a player they could sign whoever they wanted you know every year they they signed the best player in the world nowadays you know Man City or or Paris Saint-Germain or even Barcelona have more money than than Madrid do so they're not able to just go out and buy the the biggest stars and their salaries were so high as well as you know all these great players came to be 27 28 29 30 they they all got their salary bumps and they all ended up um earning more money so the the squad was kind of filleted your Kovacic's and your Morata's were, were moved on to, to ensure that they could keep their biggest stars they made a big move towards signing younger players uh, Florentino Perez has admitted himself that what they were before they waited for a player to be 24 25 26 before they they signed him that now they're trying to get him at 
16, 17, 18 or, or 2021. So they have a lot of players. You know, Odegaard was one of the first ones and he's, you know, he seems like he's been around for a long time, but he's still only 21 and he's coming back next season. He's going to be pretty good. I think he's going to be, he's he's at the level that he can play for Madrid in, in La Liga. Um, but the squad isn't isn't so good. The Barca squad isn't so good either. The Atletico Madrid squad isn't so good either, which kind of made it such an exciting La Liga title race so far this season because the, the big teams were, were dropping points, were losing at Levante or, or Mallorca or whoever, and the likes of Sevilla for a while, Real Sociedad for a while, were, were putting it up to them in, in the title race. It, it means probably that they're not going to do so well in Europe, but it, it made for a decent uh, run domestically. Yeah, I mean, at the point where the season was paused, was suspended, Barcelona two points clear of Zidane's Real Madrid team. Um, we were obviously denied, therefore, what, what looks on paper to be a, a pretty exciting title race. Did you have a, any particular feeling about which way it might go? Did it did it feel like Real Madrid were, were chasing Barcelona down in any way? The most likely thing was that, that Messi was going to be the decisive factor. I did, for the Atlantic, I did the Player of the Year piece just this week, assuming that, that nothing huge is going to happen over the last 11 games if they're ever played. And Messi has been, been head and shoulders above everybody else. And there are there's two games, both... Madrid and Barca went to Betis fairly recently before the, the break stopped. Barca played really poorly. Betis were all over them, scored twice in the first half. But but Messi came up with three assists to, to make sure that Barca won that game. Whereas Madrid, similar enough, that Betis were the better team, scored two goals. And Madrid were only able to score once to, to come out of it. So the, the feeling was that no matter, that both teams were probably likely to, to drop more points over the, the last 11 games, but that Barca would, would had Messi, so Barca would come through and win it. Well, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much to Dermot Corrigan for, for his insight on this topic. We've been talking about Zidane and Zinedine Zidane as a manager, his tactics at Real Madrid, his development as a manager, the, the tactics that have seen him win three Champions League titles with Real Madrid uh, and just the one La Liga title and potentially... They could be in for it this year if and when football returns in Spain. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Zonal Marking podcast. We'll be back again with a fresh episode next week, moving back to England to look at a Premier League team in a way that only Michael Cox and the Zonal Marking podcast can. Uh, if you would like to sign up to The Athletic today, there's all sorts of good stuff on site from Dermot, from Michael and from a whole host of other brilliant football writers. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash Zonal Marking is the place to go. That's where you'll get yourself a 90-day free trial. As for us Please join us next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast.